Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is the evolution of hedge funds and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Anton Pill, managing partner of JP Morgan Global Alternatives. And with me today are Paul Zumo, CEO and CIO of the JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management Hedge Fund Solutions Business, and John Anderson, President of the JP Morgan Alternatives Hedge Fund Solutions Business. Welcome to Insights. Happy to be here. Glad to be here. Paul and John, we're excited that you could join us here today at our podcast. Let's start with talking about hedge funds. Why should people care about hedge funds in 2017? What is going on in the hedge funds that make it an important part of a, an investment? What I, what I thought I'd do is maybe give you a couple of real-life examples of client conversations we're having. Hedge funds historically have been used for a diversifier in portfolios. And if you look at the markets today where you could argue equities are fairly valued and so is credit, clients are looking for alternatives to, one, generate returns, but also for diversification in a more muted return environment. So... We've had a couple of conversations, one where they're looking for clear diversification, so downside protection in case things get choppy. But on the flip side, what we're seeing is clients expecting a more muted return from equities and fixed income, trying to find areas to add value from a return perspective. So in the hedge fund space, they can really fill both roles. You can hire managers that have low beta, low correlation to markets, or you can hire more aggressive managers that are looking for returns. So we're seeing a bifurcation in those client discussions on the role they want them to fill in portfolios. And I'm assuming in an environment of uncertainty and where interest rates are headed with the Fed removing liquidity, are we seeing people's requests coming more out of funding that from fixed income or are they funding that out of equity? It's like, what is the driver behind where the flows are coming from? Yeah, I'd say more recently, especially coming into the current rate environment, we've seen more conversations coming from the fixed income allocation. And is that driving people towards sort of the lower vol type strategy, diversification, or the inverse? It's really a mix, and I think it's by client type. Pensions and certain institutional investors have fairly high return targets, so they need returns. Even if they're looking at fixed income and saying, at best, I may get the coupon, at worst, I'm negative, that doesn't work for them. They have a funded status. They have a return target they have to hit, so they're looking for returns. You have others that are saying, hey, I have private equity. I have other return-seeking assets. I need diversification in case things get choppy. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of that. Uh, people have been asking for what other asset class can I hide in in an environment where potentially equities doesn't do particularly well and fixed income maybe suffers in a Fed rate rising environment. Paul, switching uh, sure. gears a little bit. 2016 was obviously a difficult year for many hedge funds from a performance standpoint and a flow standpoint. What was it in 2016 that caused this to happen? I know we've seen a bit of a turnaround of that in 2017, mm-hmm. but let's talk a little bit about 2016. Sure. Just to put it in context, I think the backdrop has been difficult for a number of years, but 2016 was quite challenging for a couple of reasons, probably the primary one being crowding. So, and crowding is uh, inequities first and foremost. So you had a number of hedge funds invested in a lot of overlapping stocks, and that came under pressure and kind of unwound, which caused a lot of negative performance. If you look in the marketplace, there's been over the last, let's call it 10, 20 years, a large decline in the number of stocks. And that's partially responsible for the crowding. And there's also been a lot of inflows into equity and event-driven strategies. So that was definitely one of the biggest culprits. Following that, you oftentimes see flows out of those strategies which then in turn set the stage for a rebound in a performance. And that's really what you saw in the first quarter. So it's not as if those crowded stocks are necessarily poorly picked stocks. They actually outperform over time. 
The issue is that they just come under pressure in a short period of time. And the good news is that that normally reverses, and that's what we saw in the first quarter. So you saw a very good performance, I'd say, first and foremost in long short equities, also in event driven, but in other strategies as well. It was pretty broad based, which is quite encouraging. In 2017. 2017. And one of the challenges, I think, or that at least it seems to be occurring, is the word hedge seems to be lost with a number of hedge funds. Mm-hmm. So they just end up looking like very concentrated long only managers. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the experience that people had investing in the last several years where they've had negative experiences ended up being with managers that were more concentrated and event-driven and long equity beta than perhaps we've seen in the past? Well, I'd say at times, you know, I'd probably broaden it to say, because you've certainly seen a number of fund closures and there's various fund closures or conversions to family offices. And again, it's there's always case-by-case situations, but... You know, risk management is always at the forefront of many of those closures. And whether it was not properly assessing the basis risk in a portfolio, perhaps being over your skis in terms of the beta exposures or other exposures that you have in the portfolio, or at times perhaps having too much illiquidity, I think they all played a hand in some of the issues that have been in the industry. And picking up on some of those issues, we've seen some turmoil around some of the bigger funds for a number of issues. I've noticed that there's been a consolidation of funds and that the assets under management seem to be consolidating to the larger players who've been established and have been around for a longer period of time. Is that a trend that you guys see continuing going on or is this sort of a simply a a symptom of the 2016 returns? Sure. I mean, I think there's certainly great managers that fall into all camps in terms of from an assets under management standpoint, but definitely there's been you know, large flows have gone into the larger managers in the space. And I think there's been a, you know, a couple of reasons why there's been, you know, over the last, let's call it 10 years, an increasing amount of money investing directly with hedge funds rather than intermediaries. And also, you know, consultants have played a more prominent role. And for both of those reasons, people that are just managing direct money and the consultant model tends to gravitate toward larger managers, managers that have been around and have invested successfully through different cycles. And there's a perceived safety in those managers, and that's what's really driven a lot of flows. Again, it's not to say that there aren't a lot of exciting new launches, but definitely the lion's share of money has gone toward the larger managers. And I think a key part of that process, though, as money's moving to larger managers, is really understanding the impact of that size on their strategy. So are they taking on more illiquidity? What is happening as they grow? First and foremost, does that growth take them out of where their comfort level or their expertise is? And if it is, that's a big risk. So really understanding that is an important part of the hedge fund investing process. I think one of the things we've seen is we've seen a renewed interest in sort of more diversified, multi-strategy type approaches in hedge funds, which I think goes back to your earlier point. Generally, they are larger, but the stability of the return profile that a number of multi-strats that have been around for longer, that stability and lower vol characteristics is getting picked up more and more as sort of future uncertainty is rising in the asset allocation models. Switching gears a little bit in 2017, what are the investment strategies that clients should be thinking about or that you believe hedge funds are going to be focusing on to get sort of maximize their risk-adjusted returns for the year? As I mentioned before, there's kind of a number that are looking increasingly attractive, and maybe I'd highlight three that we've built up and definitely have a fair amount of excitement with. So the first one being statistical arbitrage. 
and not just large managers, but smaller managers as well. And there's been a number of shifts in the marketplace that have made the uh, investment opportunities of Cisco Arbitrage particularly attractive. So I'd say first and foremost, there's been an explosion in the amount of data, and not just structured data, but unstructured data as well. Second, the you know computing power has increased and the costs of it have decreased, which everything else equal is very helpful as well. And then third, there's been an increase in the techniques manager used to analyze the data. So machine learning as probably in the forefront. And that really sets up well for the combination of all that. So managers are producing more alpha signals and using smarter computing techniques to kind of generate returns and risk manage your portfolio. So we're definitely enthusiastic with the prospects for Cisco arbitrage. And again, that's a strategy that Especially if you're focused on the short-term end of Cisco arbitrage, if you do see an increase in volatility, those managers should either do quite well, if not take advantage of that. The second thing I'd mention is long-shot equities. So even as John said, we do think that the equity markets themselves perhaps are rich, not to suggest they're going to fall off a cliff, but definitely rich. That being said, we think alpha generation will continue to be strong. So we prefer these days long-shot equity managers who are running a relatively low net exposure. And interestingly, and going back to you know one of the things in the first quarter that we saw, which was atypical over the last number of years, is actually alpha generation on the short side. So short side has been a very difficult place to invest for the last number of years. And we believe that it will, you know, has started to change and perhaps will continue to change, especially if interest rates go up. And then the last area, which is really an area, one of the few areas of the world, not only in hedge funds, but even more broadly, arguably, that truly has dislocation, kind of continued dislocation is in the private credit area. And we kind of think about private credit, or we call it sometimes banking system dislocation, of managers really doing two things. So either stepping into the shoes of a bank as a lender, you know, so as banks have backed away from some of their non-core lending activities, hedge funds or private credit funds have stepped in in that place, or conversely, buying debt directly from banks that are selling it because of regulatory requirements or otherwise other pressure. And you know, it's really been an evolution that we've seen in the hedge fund industry that's kind of lies between traditional hedge fund investing and kind of call it private equity investing. So these are structures that generally are kind of three to eight year drawdown type structures, but again, offer quite interesting rates of return. And I think one other theme that's helping us is the industry challenges are creating opportunities. So for instance, it's more difficult for managers to raise money. Newer managers are having difficulty getting off the ground. That opens up the opportunity to do co-invest in other strategies with managers at lower fees, which are additive to a portfolio as well. So it doesn't necessarily fall neatly into a strategy bucket, but creating opportunities to generate alpha at lower fees. So let's touch a little bit on the first category, statistical arbitrage. Mm-hmm. By the way, I would use the more colloquial terms of quant, big data, sure. big computing, whatever, machine learning, algorithmic investing, I can throw a lot of big words here. One of the challenges of investing in this space is that the computer at the end of the day is only as good as the historical data that trained it. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes when you look at people in the quant space, they can show you great performance and great models because they've trained their models or their machine learning based on historical data, and then they show you the performance relative to that data. So what approach should people be thinking about if they want to access the quant space and the statistical arbitrage space, the big data space, what approach should they be taking given that so many of these managers are new in the space? One of the distinguishing characteristics of a statistical arbitrage or quant manager is the time horizon in which they operate on. And I'll come back and answer maybe this question in a different way as well. But 
We think one of the distinguishing characters is the time horizon in which they operate. So forgetting about high-frequency trading, you're talking about maybe more traditional statistical arbitrage, we would define short-term time horizon as being, let's call it a couple of weeks, where longer-term time horizon is really turning over every, let's call it two to three months. And everything else equal, I think what sometimes people miss is when you're investment statistical arbitrage manager that's investing over a two to three month time horizon, most of those managers are going to allow factor exposures in their portfolios. So let's call it traditional value factor exposures or momentum factor exposures. And the issue with that is, you know, normally you would invest in a statistical arbitrage manager because of correlation benefits in addition to returns. But if you're picking up those factor exposures, then they're very commonly overlap with long-short equities. So you're not getting the correlation that you may think you are. As a matter of fact, again, going back to one of the challenges of 2016, was a rapid reversal in some of the factor exposures, which hurt certain managers that were not residualizing or getting rid of such factor exposure. So I think that's one of the very important issues. Going back to the, you know, the question of the focus on new managers and backtests, I mean, clearly you're never going to want to buy a backtest. But I think one critical element is how managers use machine learning. And to your point, if they're introducing machine learning to a data set and kind of more or less saying just go crazy and find a patent, we would, everything else equal, generally be quite skeptical of that approach as opposed to starting with a prior or basis or logical uh, outcome and then using machine learning as an example to aid the analysis. Right. So you use the machines to validate a particular thesis that you may have going into it rather than just trying to feed as much data as possible and hope something comes out. That's right. And Um, I think the other thing to do is when you're having those conversations with managers, trying to understand have their models changed? Have they taken models out of production, added new models? So again, how are they adapting? What you don't want to see, I think, to your question is, I wrote one model, I'm just going to ride it and never change it. So one of the questions you need to ask is, how many models are you using? How has that changed over history? What have you added? How have you adapted models? So you can really understand their process of adapting and changing to the environment as it changes. Right, which becomes extremely critical for people like in the high-frequency space where the degree of frequency starts moving so quickly that like you're constantly adapting to newer information coming out. Yeah, and it's also, it could be that. It could be money flowing into the space where alpha degrades, and you want to understand, is it degrading to a point where no matter how good your model is, the alpha is so small that it's not going to happen. So you really need to understand all of that, or at least try to understand right. that. And Paul, you had mentioned earlier all these factors for those people who who weren't quite sure what Paul meant by that, at the end, you're simply saying that if you're buying something for diversification benefits, you just got to be careful that you're not taking on ancillary exposure that you didn't really want in the first place, exactly. whether it be value or momentum, exactly. um, etc. The other approach that I find intriguing in this space is that people are buying multiple quants to try to get almost like a foot in the door to sort of test which one will work, given that just some of the people in the space are fairly new. Yeah, I think what we try to do and what I think it's a good approach, Paul mentioned the time horizons. So when we're looking at a quant allocation, you want diversification across time horizon. You don't want all quants doing medium-term trend because they're all going to behave in similar patterns at similar times. So what you want to do is maybe have some high frequency, some short-term, some longer-term, blend those together so one, you have diversification not only by manager, but also by time horizon. So certain models will adapt quicker than others, gives you better diversification and hopefully a better outcome over time. 
Yeah, and maybe the second piece of that is just quant managers, maybe you know, more broadly hedge funds have certainly opened up a lot more in terms of the transparency that they give and transparency of process first and foremost. That being said, just by its nature, the statistical arbitrage managers, especially the most sophisticated ones, are always going to be to some degree somewhat opaque. So having a more diversified approach, everything else equal and you know, smaller position sizes across a number of managers makes a lot of sense because the last thing you want to do is kind of chase performance and not really understand the underlying strategies in a very detailed basis. Because let's face it, you know, any strategy, whether it's a hedge fund or even a traditional side, is going to test you at some point. One of the other things that we've seen a big development over the last several years has been the expansion of liquid alts into the hedge fund space. What has the performance been like and sort of what are the challenges or the pros and cons of liquid alternatives? Sure. One of the pros is obviously fees, right? What you tend to see in these liquid alts is they tend to be lower fees. So that's a benefit. One of the trade-offs of that, though, is certain strategies in a liquid format that are liquid aren't available in a liquid format. So high alpha, less liquid strategies, no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to put those into a liquid format. So you have to weigh the trade-offs of do the fees and do the access to that alt beta outweigh the alpha generation of some of the less liquid strategies out there. And what we've seen some clients do is actually blend an allocation to both, saying, and we agree with this, I don't want to pay hedge fund fees for things that I can replicate. Right? If I can replicate merger arb, I can replicate other strategies, why am I paying 1 and 22 and 24 that? I'm going to save that fee budget for those higher alpha strategies. So that combination has been beneficial, and we've seen a lot more clients talking about that type of allocation. Right, and Liquid Alts has also given access to the hedge fund industry to a number of clients who otherwise would not qualify for the private investments directly. That's correct, and we do believe you can create a portfolio of Liquid Alts managers that very closely resembles the return profile of a diversified hedge fund allocation, traditional diversified hedge fund allocation, which means you know providing downside protection and upside participation. So again, part of the reason you're able to do that is still you can create diversification, but with the lower fees as well, you can get that similar type of experience. I think I it's think just making approach. sure that clients understand the trade-offs is right. the important part of it. By going liquid, you do give up something. Right. And people just need to know that. Again, we think you can overcome that. Right. And, you can see that and you can see that, I guess, to some degree in the performance of the liquid alts relative to the private alts, that there is a bit of a, even though the fees are lower, there is a bit of a performance drag because of the lack of opportunity set that isn't necessarily available in the liquid format. Is that I think fair? that's part of it. I think it depends on the environment more than anything else. I mean, so far, not that liquid alternatives as a group, and of course, there's many different approaches, many different kinds, but as a group, I'd say they haven't shot the lights out, but to be fair, on the private hedge fund side, I'd kind of say the same thing. So from a tracking perspective, I'd say the tracking is within expectations for sure. We'd certainly like to see both kind of the private side and the liquid alt side increase. I think the more recent performance on both sides has actually increased, and it's encouraging. You know, I think part of it is environmental too. If you went through a period where leverage came under pressure, the private side would probably do worse than the public side because you can't use a lot of the liquid alt side, because you can't use a lot of leverage in liquid alt's format. In other scenarios, you would think that the reverse could be true. If you went through a period where more niche strategies were getting rewarded in the marketplace, then the private side would outperform the liquid alt side. So let's touch a little bit on, on the elephant in the room on fees. Clearly, a lot's been written up about fees and hedge funds. Sometimes to me, that's confusing because when we look at performance, it's net of fees. So it's sort of, depending if performance is really good, most people don't care if performance is bad. They all of a sudden care a lot. 
What are sort of the developments and changes in fee structures, et cetera, that you've been seeing across the hedge fund industry over the last several years in response? Maybe I'll, I'll just put it in context. I mean, people talk about these days as like the two and 20 fee structure, and maybe I'm showing my age, having done this for 22 years. But when we started the business, it was one in 20. So the way we've looked at it is too many managers have been overcharging for a very long period of time. And really it started when institutions more or less kind of entered the marketplace. There was a supply, demand and balance. So 1 in 20 became 2 in 20, but the good news is the headline fees have actually dropped to kind of call it 1.5. some cases, 3 and 30. Yeah, for some strategies, that's right. But I'd say the average fees is, let's call it 1.5 in 20 these days, or you know headline fees. But even that, I think, masks the decrease in fees for especially larger investors. And the way they're getting it is either through things like managed accounts, co-investments as well. Co-investments have really risen in popularity over the last five to 10 years. Just to give you an example, say the baseline co-investment fee is probably zero or 50 basis points in 10. So if you're doing a lot of co-invests, obviously that's bringing down the overall fee structure. John mentioned liquid alts as well. It's another way in which is. So when we look at you know our relationships in more of a holistic way, Aggregate fee structures are, you know, certainly much lower than some of the headlines out there. But there's been a movement in a number of unique structures. This one or thirties kind of in the marketplace, which, which really speaks to just getting better alignment from managers and really just paying for alpha rather than beta. And whether we push that fee structure or a different one, we're certainly on board with getting uh, higher alignment. And then the second thing that's been out there for a while is just founder share class or so early investments with managers. And in those cases, you've seen not only the overall fee structure decrease, but you've seen some creative fee structures as well. So as an example, having everything else equal, perhaps a higher fee structure in the beginning, even something that resembles 2 and 20. But as the manager's assets increase, let's say past $500 million, your fees that you pay the manager is going to drop tremendously to the point of if they're managing a billion dollars, you may not pay any management fees at all and a 10% incentive fee, which again speaks to, from our standpoint, is interesting because it speaks to the alignment of interest. In the early days, the manager might need that money, but as they succeed, you should be rewarded for backing the manager at an early early stage. Which is unique to, it's almost sort of the incubation or the founder shares of newer strategies that are starting to be on their own. To your point, Anton, net of fees, we've been asked, well, can you create a hedge fund portfolio at one in 10? And the answer is yes. We could go out there and hire managers that are either in trouble or newer managers only, beat them down on fees, and get a fairly low-fee hedge fund offering, right? But again, what we weigh when we're looking at the overall package is what do we think the net returns are? So it's not just a fee argument, right? A manager may command 3 and 30 and may be worth it. A manager may be 1 and 10 and may not be worth it at all. So again, making sure you understand what you're getting for what fees is very important. And on the client side specifically, you know, we've seen clients looking at different fee structures. Some now want just a flat fee. Some are willing to pay a higher performance fee, a lower management fee to help that alignment. So there's definitely a lot of conversations about different fee structures that each client's different based on their utility function. Right. The way I think about it is that the performance just generally around the fee structure is that it boils down to size and duration. If you have enough size and are Mm -hmm. willing to lock in for enough time you'll probably see some sort of alternative to what traditional fee structures are looking like. And whether that's as a startup or Mm -hmm. whether that's in a larger fund, that's one of the places to think about slicing it. And you're right, performance at the end of the day is key. If you don't have it, you won't demand those fees. One last thing, uh, 
You mentioned, Paul, uh, you touched on private credit, this notion of, you know, private credit falls a little bit in between hedge funds and private equity, and it's probably becoming slowly a new asset class of its own. Have you seen an increase in sort of hybrid hedge funds where they're hedge funds with lockups that they're not technically private equity, where people are taking advantage of private credit and trying to do them through sort of a hedge fund structure? Yeah, there's definitely been a, uh, say, a rapid increase over the last just post-credit crisis of a number of hedge funds starting to take advantage or become, in many cases, kind of only private credit-oriented managers. So these are managers that are taking advantage of whether it's you know direct lending or non-performing loans or, again, stepping into the shoes as a lender, some litigation finance, as an example, but generally having lockups anywhere between three and eight years, let's call it, and trying to get double-digit returns. So we've seen a tremendous amount of interest in that space and definitely expect it to continue. That being said, we do think that there are pockets of private credit that are probably getting overheated. So I think finding differentiated managers, finding sub-strategies that are not too crowded and continue to offer an attractive rate of return is definitely critical. Yeah, I mean, that's key. I mean, again, going back to kind of how we started the conversation, clients either looking for diversification or potentially returns. Those clients that are looking for returns are using an illiquidity budget to get there. And there's the spectrum all the way out to private equity. This falls in the more liquid than that, that clients are willing to use some of their illiquidity budget to get that higher level return. So I think the demand side that you mentioned, we think is going to continue for sure. One last quick question before we wrap up. What are some of the risks people should be thinking about over the next several years in this space? We've seen performance pick up again, mm-hmm. but what are, if each of you could identify one risk you think clients should just be cognizant about as hedge funds, what would it be? Well, I think the biggest risk is probably subpar performance because there's a lot of money in the space. And if you're you know, investing in strategies that are maybe two on the run, there's only so much alpha to go around. So I think that's clearly the biggest risk that's out there. But the second risk is probably around risk management. You know, there's been, whether it's factor-based investing or other risk parity or other kind of approaches that are out there in the marketplace, it's, you know, led kind of herding of people to manage portfolios in similar fashions. And we've been in a period of extremely low volatility across basically every asset class. So people that are managing portfolios in a, you know, a VAR-based framework and are not properly taking into account the potential future volatility environment could be in for a surprise, especially given the amount of capital that's out there in these strategies and how we could increase volatility in an extremely, extremely rapid fashion. I think it's really when a client invests in hedge funds or chooses to invest in a hedge fund, setting the expectations of what they expect to get out of it is very important because what we've seen is Especially in the bull market, clients became very disappointed in hedge funds because they haven't delivered the returns. So again, understanding why you bought hedge funds in the first place will help them hold them through a cycle. And I think that's an important part of it. Yeah, I think one of the analyses that both of you run quite often is gross leverage and thinking about leverage. And I think investing in hedge funds, you should always be cognizant of the leverage because at the end of the day, we've had a decade of very cheap money that many managers took advantage of. And we just want to make sure that you don't find yourself in an over-levered position when rates start rising. Absolutely. Not only that, but how they secured that leverage. Is it short-term, long-term? Is it term financing? Can they hold that leverage in a difficult period? It's an important part of the process as well. Perfect. Well, thank you both for joining us. I'm hopeful that people listening can have a better understanding of hedge funds and how they can 
help and diversify your portfolio, especially in an uncertain environment around fixed income and equities as the Fed raises rates through the next several years. And thank you all for joining us. Paul and John, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on May 3rd, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the marketing name for the asset management businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and their affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EEA jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 19760-1586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 20112355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, 
and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.